Welcome to this episode of Voices Unheard. With us today is Hashim Al-Ghaili. He's a trained scientist and science communicator. I'll let him explain what that means a bit later. But his videos appear on Facebook and YouTube, sometimes bringing in more than 2 million views. He was born and raised in Yemen and now lives in Germany. He joins us from there by Skype and he weighs in on some of the latest scientific findings and talks about some of the main challenges that science faces in the Arab world today. So first, I just want to start by thanking you for joining us on the show Voices Unheard. And if you can uh, just go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do, what exactly is a science communicator? Yeah, um, my name is Hashim Al-Ghaili and um, I am a science communicator. That's basically a person who bridges the gap between um, scientists and scientific research and the general public. So, um, you know that scientists are very busy, you know, actively engaged in scientific research. They don't really have time to uh, communicate their results to the general public. So this is where science communicators come to play the role. You know, simplifying these information, putting them in a very engaging manner and delivering these results to the general public to make them excited about science and to keep them informed of the scientific progress that's happening every day. Okay, uh, now I'm aware that you yourself come from an interesting background. You seem to have always known that you're interested in science and you've sort of beat the odds to get where you are. So just tell us a little bit about your background. Um, well, I was born in uh, Yemen. There wasn't really much going on in, in terms of science, but um, I grew up uh, loving science and learning about it from children's magazines. I um, also contributed to, you know, these magazines. I, uh, I was sharing some interesting facts, so whatever interesting thing that I come across, I would share it and it would definitely make me happy that I'm educating people and learning new things. Then I studied in Yemen, then moved to Pakistan, where I did my bachelor's in biotechnology. After that, I returned to Yemen, worked for six months in a laboratory for microbiologists. Then I moved to Germany, where I did my master's in molecular biotechnology. And um, after that, I decided to become a science communicator, which is what I do now. So you actually have training, and you're, you're a scientist by training as well. Yes, exactly. And I think it's, it's, um, it's very important because um, that makes me qualified to um, share science with the general public. If you can understand science, then you are qualified to deliver it in a very engaging way. And that makes, makes it easy for me to, to do as well. Uh, yeah. So I'm curious. You grew up, I mean, at least partially in, in Yemen, in the Arab world, and I'm sure you're familiar with uh, how the school curriculum is in general in other Arab countries. What would you say is missing when it comes to science education in the Arab world? Well, first of all, um, what's missing is that it's compulsory to, to teach religion besides science. And I, I think there should be uh, separated schools for, for science, that it should not be bound by uh, these things that, you know, teach people to stick to traditions and stuff. There are also many other things that are missing. The, the, the curriculum itself is very outdated. It's really not updated according to the recent scientific breakthroughs. 
I mean, if you look, uh, very often updates happen every 15 years. And we know within 15 years, science would have made remarkable progress. Things have changed. Anatomy has changed. We discovered new organs. We discovered new types of cells. But it just sticks to the same thing for quite many years. And uh, it keeps generating all these generations of people who are still ignorant about many things that are uh, that have been discovered by science. And then you've got also the problem of um, of the quality of education. In the Middle East, basically, um, we focus more on the theoretical level, but we don't really do the practical side. And this is a very big problem. I mean, um, when most students from the Middle East move to uh, countries that are developed, where they have to really start doing experiments by themselves, they don't have enough experience. And I have experienced that myself. We, we don't really uh, help the students get in touch with the practical side of science because that's how uh, it sticks to their minds and that's how they can contribute. And then there is also the problem of how deep and how profound we teach. You know, we just scratch the surface. We don't teach profound knowledge. We, we don't go in depth. And this is really a big problem. And then one thing that is uh, very essential to talk about when, when we describe this is, um, as I said earlier, the quality of the courses that are taught there do not teach people to, to be open-minded towards new ideas. And um, this is creating a generation of people who will always resist change, even though science is based on change. It, it always changes, and we have to keep an open mind towards these new ideas that science keeps discovering every day. But that's really not the case in the Middle East. What would you say are some of the most common misperceptions in the Arab world when it comes to science? Uh, I don't know, when it comes to the theory of evolution or medicine or whatever. What are some stubborn ideas that you find have stayed in people's mind all this time and, and aren't changing? You know, uh, there are additional books that uh, most of the time teachers recommend to their students. These books are called The Miracle of the Holy Book. Yeah. And so they um, they are... This is, are, you mean, the, the miracle of from the Quran, from the Holy Quran? Yes, Quran. exactly. And so this is... The idea here is, um, is that it's a complementary... These are complementary books to... Um, expand your knowledge about science. I mean, I was reading some of them, and I can tell you that they're not really filled with anything that's scientific. Now, there are many things that... Um, uh, let me just give you one example, okay? I, I'll give you one example. It's um, the moon, yeah? You say there is a miracle in which the moon was divided into two parts, and people in the past, okay, could clearly see that the moon was divided into two parts. And if, if you want to look for evidence on that, you, you, you have to read the Quran. This is what a book would tell you, yeah? And then they uh, this took is, something... You mean this would be a science book that would tell you this? No, this would be the Quran, okay? This is in the Quran that the this moon was the divided Quran, in Shaq al-Qamar, okay? But who, who well, tells you to go reference the Quran? Uh, these are the teachers, the religious teachers who are in the schools, okay. you know? This is this is the way that this is the quality of education. This is the way the students are taught there. Anyways, let me let me illustrate this example. So what what they did is they took pictures of the moon. 
that were taken from uh, moon landings by NASA. And they said, look, there is an evidence of the moon being split into two parts. Unfortunately, of course, it wasn't. <laughs> unfortunately for them, it wasn't actually real. And NASA responded that this is not true. So they had to find another way to explain this again, to manipulate it. So it's, it's just, you know, they, they try to use these um, religious books, manipulate them in a way that, hey, let's just keep people more ignorant, more restricted, um, more close-minded only towards certain ideas, and they will always resist anything that science tells them. Mm. And this is really the common mindset in the Middle East. And I think if, if we don't find a way to change it, um, we're just gonna, going to remain behind the developed countries for quite many ages. Yeah, uh, during my travels in the Middle East, I remember seeing uh, a very popular book that says everything you'll ever need to know about science is in the Quran, and it's uh, and it just gives examples from the Quran, sort of all the discoveries that humankind has made, referenced in the Quran, and and I guess all the predictions for the future also mm -hmm. referenced in the Quran. De definitely not. I think this is not just you know this is not just the problem of. Uh, um, Muslims, for example, or the Quran, it's actually all religions, yeah? I mean, I, when I look into Facebook, often posted on my uh, articles about science and videos about science, people from uh, Christianity, they say, hey, look, this has been in the Bible for quite a long time, and science is just discovering. And then someone else say, hey, the ancient Indians have discovered this in a very long... So everybody is just uh, trying to describe it in a way that oh, look, we are the first to mention something like that, and you're just talking about it now. Mm -hmm. But when the same discovery is updated, okay, with a new information that was totally unexpected to them, they will all deny, oh, this, well, we, we can't really, you know, be affiliated to something like that. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's a fixed, it's a fixed fact that they believe in. Yeah. And you can't believe in fixed facts. There is nothing as fixed, okay? Mm -hmm. There will always be something that science will reveal which in which we have to be flexible. Right. So I've looked up some of the uh, recent videos that you've put together. Um, why don't you tell us about some of them? Uh, I was looking, for example, at the one uh, titled 550 million years in 40 seconds. Uh, I, you know, it's about sort of the evolution of our planet and us and... Yeah, it's... Tell um, a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's actually a video that I, uh, I think spent one month making. It's called um, Our Story in Five Minutes and it starts with the Big Bang and uh, it moves forward until the future. And it shows the Big Bang, it shows um, also uh, evolution, um, it shows, um, you know, how humanity started, how, how things progressed. Um, and it generated a lot of interesting comments, some of people, some of the people resisted the idea, because, hey, look, I believe in some of the parts of this video, and I reject the other parts. And I think this is not, you know, how, how it should work, you know, you believe what you like, and you just disregard what you don't like just because um, it doesn't meet your expectations or it doesn't fit what you believe in. I mean, that's really, you, it's size is a whole package and you have to accept it all or just stay away from it if you, you know, don't wish to.
but yeah, it was. Um, I mean, there is this conception when it comes to the the uh, evolution part in that video is that uh, people think that humans evolved from, um, you know, apes. But in reality, humans and apes, they share a common ancestor. And even if you try to lay down this fact to people, they would still resist it. And um, it's a tragic, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that a lot of your audience are, I mean, basically young people. You're reaching, you know, because the, the ideas you're capturing in this film aren't new obviously but the audience that's being exposed to it this is for many of them this is the first time or or the first time it's um presented to them in such a in such an accessible way that's mm -hmm. them and to their generation and i presume a lot of your audience are also based in the middle east yeah well actually international they are distributed across the globe but there are many of them from the middle east do you get any visceral reactions, people getting really, really upset, or any threats against you as a result? I don't really receive any threats, but definitely there are many uh, angry reactions towards, um, you know, the way I uh, describe science to, to, to some of them. I mean, the question is how do they join the page, all right? Maybe they have seen a video about medical technology and then they decided to join the page and after a few days they see a video about evolution coming from the same page. Or I say, hey, I, I, I like your videos about medical stuff, but I just don't like this one. Huh? Say, well, it's, it's, it's part of science and I'm describing science to you. Uh, but there are definitely many people who are angry. There are many people who are open-minded, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I always let the discussion flow in a very good way. So if people who disbelieve in it um, can be corrected by people who know it better. Right. Uh, what about the sort of less controversial um, films? For example, The World in 2030 or The World in 2040 that I saw mm. on YouTube. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so these are basically um, predictions of what the future would look like, yeah? And these are uh, based on scientific studies, based on plans by companies. For example, a, a company in Japan said, hey, we're going to build the space elevator by, the, by 2050 and it will be operational, all right? This is a plan. So I put that plan into the video as part of, you know, something that a company wants to do, or SpaceX, hey, we are going to land on Mars by late 2020s. So I put that as a plan, it's part of the video. But then there are also some other scientific studies, for example, say, hey, by the year 2050, nuclear fusion will be already operational and it will be on the industrial scale, yeah? So yeah, it's actually based on uh, scientific studies and uh, plans by really big, big companies that, uh, that have good reputation. But I think, um, you know, I, 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 would I would like to continue this series uh, to go even beyond 2100, yeah, to describe the future. And um, based on my knowledge, I will also put my own prediction in between. Well, can you share that prediction with us now? Um, actually, I'm working on a video right now. It's the world in uh, 2050 and 2060. So um, there are uh, quite some predictions that, um, that are going to happen in 2050, for example. Uh, around 6.3 billion people will live in cities. Wow. Yeah. 
we will have around uh, 5 billion of the world people, you know, a population uh, will be living in water-stressed areas. There will be a huge water shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely uh, going to be a problem. Um, Middle East is going to suffer from, um, you know, um, huge heat waves due to climate change, and there will be migrations, quite many migrations. So um, the migrations that we see today because of uh, because of war, in the future they will be because of climate change. And uh, Gulf countries will be highly affected by this, of course, so I don't know what kind of measures are they going to take um, against this because this problem cannot be solved by one or two nations. It requires global effort. Yeah. Do you have some of your own personal predictions that are uh, specific? Uh, my personal prediction, um, well, first of all, now that we see um, uh, CRISPR Cas9, which is a technology that's used to, uh, to precisely update the genome, and we see many countries, um, got China and now the United States, they are actually experimenting on human embryos. So combine this research with ectogenetics, uh, which is the ability to allow the embryo to develop outside the womb. I mean, this year we have seen uh, a goat that was basically allowed to develop outside the uterus of the mother, yeah, yeah. in an artificial environment. So if you combine the research on embryos with CRISPR-Cas9 and also the uh, the artificial womb, then by 2050s to 2060s, we're going to see that applied to humans. So we're going to genetically engineer humans and allow them to develop in an external environment. And this is going to be a game changer. I think all the technologies for such uh, for such thing already exist. It's just a matter of um, when are we going to test them. Because of the controversy uh, that that surrounds them, it's um, it's definitely going to take a while. It's not it's not a limitation of technology, but it's just a matter of uh, overcoming uh, the ethical uh, issues. I'm your host Rasha Elas, and you're listening to Voices Unheard. Our guest this episode is Hashim Al-Ghaili. He's a Yemeni science communicator who joins us by Skype from his current hometown in Germany. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. No amount is too small to help keep the show running. We rely solely on our listeners, people like you. And now we return to our guest. So speaking of CRISPR, has this conversation arrived in parts of the Arab world, at least? I mean, you know, I know with IVF technology, that's been an ongoing conversation in the Arab world, and especially in the Gulf countries, and the uh, clergy has weighed in on it, yeah. and ethics, and so on. Islam's view on IVF is that, you know, they allow it for married couples, and but they will only allow it um, w- w- between the married couple or with uh, a donor egg, but they would not allow it with donor sperm uh, because that would enter the mother's body and that's considered adulterous. So I just wanted to explain that. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly the view. So what about with the CRISPR technology? 
Well, um, if we talk in terms of uh, the availability of technology, I think it's available. Everybody now can buy it. I mean, you can buy a kit and use it at home if you want. Um, this is the CRISPR kit, you mean? Yes. Okay. But if we talk about the application in the Middle East, I think it's going to face huge resistance and it will not be used. Um, now, the only way it's going to be used is um, probably for, uh, I don't know, like genetically engineering bacteria or algae or, um, you know, other micro, uh, like some microorganisms or, um, yeah, but on humans and embryos and uh, uh, definitely these uh, religious scholars are going to stand against it with everything they have. So this is, this is, this is going to lead to a huge gap in terms of uh, technological revolution between the Middle East and the countries that have already embraced this technology. Mainly because for religious reasons? For religious reasons, of course, because, hey, you are, I mean, this is not just in the Middle East, it's, it's actually uh, global, yeah? I mean, say, okay. hey, you are changing the perfect creation of a god, all right? Now, I, I can tell you, it's not perfect, all right? Because we have cancer, we have 6,000 genetic diseases, we have, we have so many things that we need to work on to make it perfect. And the only way we can do that is through CRISPR-Cas9. But because of the resistance, it's going to be a problem, not only in the Middle East, but in the Middle East, it will be much, much more. There is definitely no huge reception, or no reception at all, I think, except in terms of new generations and people who are open-minded and those who know its remarkable potential. Doesn't I haven't seen any reference to CRISPR in sort of public conversations in the Middle East. It doesn't seem to be part of, you know, unlike IVF, for example, which everybody knows about and everybody knows yeah. where Islam stands on IVF. But as I said, it's all because of, um, of a huge gap between, um, you know, the way the curriculum is um, formulated and the way the books and the textbooks are made. They don't really talk about these revolutionary technologies yet because they don't update them regularly yeah mm -hmm. and if they update them that that would take many years so i think we're going to start hearing more about crispr in the middle east in the next um i don't know uh, 15 to 20 years from now so mm -hmm. it's gonna be very late you know when i left yemen to pakistan to study biotechnology it wasn't there in yemen it wasn't there in the middle east it was actually 2008 People have already started biotechnology a very long time ago. I mean, Pakistan itself started in, uh, in 2001 when they introduced biotechnology. But now it's available in the it's, it's, it's available. It's available in the Middle East, but also with uh, still very limited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you return to the Middle East with a degree in biotechnology, you're not likely to get a job. Yeah. Right. Because um, it hasn't yet been embraced with, uh, you know, by, by, by many companies. So it sounds that uh, you personally are a fan of CRISPR. Um, Absolutely. Well, tell us sort of w within what framework, because obviously you've also painted a dystopic picture of how CRISPR, you know, applications of CRISPR can go all wrong. Well, I believe... And let, that... me, just, let me just interrupt for a second. I want to hmm. uh, explain CRISPR to our audience very quickly, uh, why, why don't you, since you're the science communicator, why don't you just explain it briefly to our audience? Yeah, so um, CRISPR basically is a technique that is used to update the genome. 
So what we basically do here is that we uh, take the gene of interest, all right, the gene which is desirable, for example, a gene that is responsible for, you know, removing uh, a gene that's responsible for adding some mutations to the genome of the cell that makes it stronger. Let's take, for example, immune cell, yeah, and you want to upgrade this immune cell to fight cancer. And the only way to do that is if you create a certain mutation in a certain part of the genome. So you use CRISPR to introduce that gene into the genome of the cell, and the generations that come from that cell will be strong enough to fight cancer. Now, what we can do with this technology is that we can not only just add genes, but we can also eliminate or delete genes that are harmful. Yeah, genes that are responsible for diseases, we can eliminate them. Genes that are responsible for good characteristics or traits, we can add them. And uh, what's, what's remarkable about this is that it's incredibly precise in comparison to other old techniques. So this makes it very special. And it also doesn't generate as many mutations as both techniques. And that's why there is a huge interest, because it has many applications, you know, in uh, allowing us to understand how the cell works, helping us create new biofuels, and improving uh, the potential of cells and organisms to produce biofuels in high quantities. Um, also eliminate diseases. Like recently, they updated the embryo of humans and eliminated a mutation, which is responsible for heart disease. Yeah, it's, it's a very deadly mutation, which can lead to death, of course. And they were able to upgrade the genome of the embryo and delete that. So you can, you can already see the potential of uh, such technology. Uh, it, it, its applications extend to agriculture also creating crops that are really uh, resistant to diseases with more precision. Recently, they also created um, tuberculosis-resistant cows. So there are so, there are so many uh, applications for CRISPR-Cas9, which is huge in terms of uh, industrial uh, potential. Um, it will generate billions of dollars. And that's why now there is a, there is a fight between the people who discover it in terms of who owns the patent? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But the applications are huge. Um, we haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg of what CRISPR-Cas9 can do. Um, only the next two or three years will show us. And of course, this is all a double-edged sword, like with so much of scientific discoveries. It can be used to sort of uh, create potentially designer babies that only the wealthy uh, have access to. Yes, yes. And so t so tell us about, back to your personal views on this. Designer babies. Yeah, yeah, on, on how, how you think. You're obviously you're a fan of CRISPR. Tell us if you had control over the situation, how would you like to see CRISPR applied and then what sort of uh, uh, limits would you like to see put on its applications? Um, well, I think... I wouldn't mind using CRISPR-Cas9 to uh, create designer babies because we're going to upgrade the human genome into the next level in a way that it will resist diseases. And this upgrade is going to stay for generations, yeah? Mm -hmm. for, so forever. This yeah, is basically the genetic editing lasts 
for that's it for all the subsequent generations after that. Only if you did it in the embryonic level, if you did it in our own stage like you and I, it just uh -huh. doesn't work, yeah? Because you and I already have trillions of cells and you can't edit trillions of cells. Right. But in the embryonic stage, there are still really small numbers of cells and you can upgrade them and when that organism grows, develops, the future generations will basically have all the traits that you updated the genome with. Now, of course, there is likelihood that it would be misused. The only way I would uh, stop CRISPR in terms of uh, its usage is if it's going to be used for biological weapons, like, you know, creating a virus which can infect certain race and avoid the other one, yeah? Or creating a deadly bacteria and releasing it. Um, but it, it only can... Uh, you know, cause disease on only a certain type of people depending on your own modifications. Now, the only way is, um, this is the only way I would uh, prevent uh, CRISPR from misusing it. That's, of course, my decision. Other than that, I believe that, um, yeah, we, we should definitely use it in every certain way, every application that CRISPR can do, we should just go for it. Yeah, because we don't know the risk if you don't try. Yeah, sure. And, and what about the counter-argument to that, basically, warning against so-called designer babies with, you know, oh, blue eyes and fair skin and tall and maybe a preference for male babies? Well, we can already do that, I know, a preference for male over female. But uh, higher, you know, higher IQ, higher athleticism, then the access to this technology is limited to only a small portion of the population and in essence you'd be creating a super race that's accessible mm. only to the wealthy yeah and no one else can sort of enhance their offspring in that way well as long as uh, this super race is not going to harm the normal race i think it's okay yeah uh look at it from this perspective normal people you and I, we're, we're eventually going to die, yeah? Okay? Yes. Now, 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 people who would have been designed to live longer, they would outlive us. And eventually, they will become the next step in human evolution. And that's, that's of course, going towards, um, I, I think it's a positive thing, yeah? We're, we're, we're making an upgrade in, in the way our species functions. Um, so I really don't think it's it's a problem as long as there is no harm done by the by the super species to the normal species, then I think it's going to be okay. And as I illustrated the example, um, if you look into the Middle East, for example, we've got a lot of people who still cannot read, but eventually they're going to die, and only the people who were born after a certain year, for example, people who were born in the 1990s or 1980s, uh, most of them already can read, so... That's your generation. Yeah, so this is, this is what we're, you know, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about an upgrade, yeah? So we're talking about then people who can read, and they will continue, and this will, will give a push to, to that society or that community. And that's what humanity needs right now. Um, evolution takes uh, its course in a very slow way. But if we can speed it up with CRISPR-Cas9, I don't see why we shouldn't. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. What about your thoughts on artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence has remarkable potential. Um, I think I uh, wrote an article recently about uh, my thoughts on robotics and artificial intelligence. I said that um, it's really essential, it's necessary, and we shouldn't um, we shouldn't be so afraid of it that we would prevent it. Uh, I think the problem here is that when we are afraid of something, we're trying to stop it. You know, we're not trying to to go uh, to proceed it with caution. Yeah, I think that's a problem. Uh, like what Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking always promote, say, hey, um, artificial intelligence is going to destroy us, it's going to do this, it's going to do that. Uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence, I uh, I take the side of Mark Zuckerberg, who actually promotes the use of artificial intelligence. It has so much potential and, um, and its research your, shouldn't be stopped. Uh, you're, you're referring to the recent spat between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. Uh, with Mark Zuckerberg taking the more optimistic view that there's nothing to worry about when it comes to artificial intelligence, whereas Elon Musk, the founder of, of Tesla, uh, basically yeah. warning humanity against the potential downside of artificial intelligence and what's called uh, artificial intelligence singularity with some yeah. dystopic view that artificial intelligence takes over the world and makes all the decisions and potentially destroys humanity. Exactly. So I'm on, on the optimistic side of um, artificial intelligence. As I said, you know, when it comes to technology and science, I'm always on the optimistic side. There will always be a, a limit for how much optimistic we should be. But, um, yeah, we can't really learn this limitation if we don't experiment on these things, if we don't try. And this, of course, uh, when it comes to computer coding and the latest advances in artificial intelligence, where would you say the Arab world stands? Definitely far behind. Um, <laughs> um, because I mean, sure, we, we have, well, the good thing is we have already embraced computer science a long time ago, yeah? And this is coming pretty handy. But there are definitely still many limitations when it comes to um, to how we uh, teach. I mean, if you go to many schools, people are um, studying uh, computer science theoretically. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. You've got a picture of Google Chrome and t show people, hey, this is how you can use Google Chrome. I mean, how can I actually learn how to use a software or program something if I don't have access to the equipment? Yeah. Yes. Uh, but luckily... As technology becomes cheaper, people are now um, getting access to technology. They, they, they can buy a computer at cheap price and they can start programming themselves as if they have a strong will yeah, to, to learn online and do it by themselves. So that's, that's really helping. But in, in, as for universities and schools, you really can't count on them. They're not doing their job well. Yeah. So when it comes, if, if we say that, you know, they're two factors sort of uh, holding back uh, science in the Arab world, and one is sort of uh, religion and the other is funding. When it comes to computer science and AI, that's not as uh, controversial religiously or culturally. It would be mostly the funding that's holding it back. Uh, it seems so. Yeah. It seems so. But at least, at least you know, um, 
It's also about how you explain it to religious scholars, yeah? Because these are the ultimate decision makers when it comes to science and technology and the progress in the Middle East, yeah? Now, let's go to a scholar and tell him, hey, artificial intelligence is going to eventually lead to the creation of super smart robot that is indistinguishable from humans. What will he say? He will say, hey, this is interfering with the creation of God. You're trying to bring something into existence that only God should be allowed to do, yeah? Mm -hmm. So he will say, hey, you know, uh, let's just prevent this from uh, moving forward. But if you go and say, hey, artificial intelligence is going to uh, help us create new applications that will uh, be essential for hospitals, that will be life-saving for thousands of patients, that will be this and that, um, their opinion might be different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, nothing that we've discussed today would even come to fruition uh, if we end up uh, in some sort of nuclear holocaust situation. And I saw that one of the films that you worked on recently is called The Final Moment. Uh -huh. So just tell us about that. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I tried to depict what uh, it would look like actually to have a nuclear war. But I just use stock footage, to be honest, yeah? I mean, if you look today, the nuclear uh, weapons are far more advanced than the, what they looked like a while ago, yeah? These days, you can just launch them directly from the location. You don't even need an airplane to go to the location and, uh, yeah? But it's the people, yeah? It's the people on this short film. It just shows you that everybody's just minding their own business. Some of them don't even, didn't even know about the warning, didn't even, yeah, they're just minding their own business, doing their own daily routine stuff. And all of a sudden, things happen. Um, this scenario could uh, happen any time with just a stupid decision. And if you uh, watch the movie until the end, it, um, the most important message of the movie is that there are 16,000 plus nuclear weapons and 2,000 of them are ready to be launched at any moment. So imagine a stupid decision at any moment um, that could lead to launching these 2,000 and then you've got allies, countries, you know, making allies with other ones and then we've got another war. This is one of, uh, this is, the problem is that people, when we talk about nuclear weapons, people say, hey, it's the product of science. And then they blame science for that instead of blaming people who were behind them, yeah? Not science, because science is a process. Right. It's also people who would lead to launching them. These are the decision makers. So, um, yeah, that's basically what I try to uh, depict what a nuclear war would look like. So, I'm curious, in your personal opinion, how do you think humanity might end? Uh, what what would be, you know, a virus, a nuclear holocaust, a, a, I don't know. I mean, we, we cannot really exclude any scenario, yeah? A biological warfare, uh, nuclear uh, war, or some of these scenarios. But I always choose the optimistic side. Yes, you're an optimist. Yes. Um, I mean, eventually we're going to expand into the outer space, we're going to um, extend our civilization far beyond our solar system, hopefully, yeah? I mean, Earth will always remain the place of origin for us, if it wasn't Mars, by the way, because there is a theory that uh, humans on Earth 
came from Mars. But Earth will always remain dear to us as long as we uh, don't um, deplete all the resources that we have here. By the way, there was a news that we have already depleted all the resources that are allocated to this year. Yeah. So we are now in August, yeah? And we have already depleted the resources that we're supposed to use for the whole year, yeah? Uh So we're depleting them much faster, and that's really going to be a problem. But the the way we we would die is um, once we have expanded ourselves to other planets and went far beyond our solar system or in our solar system, at least we have a group of people who can continue, you know, living species progress forward maybe it's been nature will take its course yeah when when the sun will uh, will become the red giant and earth will finally have its moment and that's gonna happen in four billion years uh-huh. i don't think so it's gonna yeah i honestly don't think it's gonna happen anytime soon as uh, stephen hawking says hey we have only one thousand years left and it's always every year the same statement 1,000 years left. It's not even reducing to 999. So um, we, we have a long time to go. We have a long and, time to go. And we'll be completely unrecognizable by then. Completely different species, no? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All thanks to technology. Yeah. With technology on our side, if you really use it well, we can do anything. Yeah, well, um, on a lighter note, tell me a little bit about the video you made about the power of music. Well, I, uh, I love music, mostly classical music, by the way. So I, I, I just um, was exploring um, what music can do to our body. And I compiled a number of studies and um, was just illustrating uh, the impact of music when you listen to music and um, how is this different between somebody who listens to music and somebody who makes music um, it's kind of slightly different so what music does is that it, it rewires our brains and it um, it helps us in terms of productivity as I mentioned in the video also it even helps surgeons perform well so surgeons who listen to music while performing the procedure, they, they perform better, as um, it was shown. Um, so, um, yeah, let me uh, take a quick look. So, yeah, um, it, it activates certain regions in uh, our brains which are involved in movement, planning, attention, learning, and uh, memory. And it also releases uh, dopamine, which is... Um, the chemical that improves our mood and reduces our anxiety. Um, it also, I mean, dopamine also induces pleasure and joy and moderation. This is why many students, when they listen to music, they, they feel more productive and that they can study uh, hard and crack the study very quickly. Um, it, it also brings memories back to the injured brain. I mean, I don't know if you have noticed this, but when you listen to music, Uh, I have noticed this myself, but I don't know if there is a study that proves it. When I listen to music during my study, and I come across information, and I listen to that music once again after a while, I remember that information. Yeah. That certain information. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what music also does to the injured brain. It brings memories back after they were gone. 
Um, it also, yeah, it allows a severely injured brain to call these personal memories. Um, it's very spectacular um, how music really uh, affects our bodies. And of course, different types of music has different effects, certainly on our mood um, and perhaps on um, our ability to concentrate and whatnot. Would you say that traditional Arabic music has a specific or special effect? Well, I think, you know, as, as all these studies um, keep saying, it's the music that you enjoy, yeah? It doesn't matter what kind of music. As long as to you is something that you really uh, like and you enjoy listening, it will have the same effect. Regardless of being classical or pop music or techno or whatever other types of music, yeah? It will all have the same effect. Right. Do you feel there's uh, anything else that we haven't touched upon that's uh, sort of uh, in the public sphere right now? Yes. Um, right now there is, um, there is definitely a huge movement in the Middle East in terms of um, acceptance of science. Yeah. And so there are several projects on Facebook, for example, the Syrian researchers, the Egyptian researchers, these are basically Facebook pages that promote science. Um, and there are many of them now, you know, NASA in Arabic and this and that. Um, I think the youth in the Middle East, they're finally, you know, putting their minds towards science and they're becoming more accepting. And um, this is something that we should appreciate. And this brings me back to my point of why old generations are eventually going to be extinct and the new ones who will be open-minded, will, um, will prevail, yeah? So, um, I mean, sure, the Middle East is moving forward very slowly, but in the future, if, even if it's a distant one, it's going to catch up with the modern world. It seems to be part of a, a larger trend in the Middle East that uh, despite the limited access young people have in their schools and in their... Uh, curriculum, they have access to the internet now, and you know, uh -huh. so it seems that the world is their oyster. Many of them educate themselves and educate their peers, and we're seeing it in many other fields as well. It's interesting. Exactly. Uh, people, people like you are playing an integral role in this as well. Thank you. Yeah. We're just trying our best. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to Voices Unheard. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. I'm your host, Rasha Ilas. 